Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. And we're thankful that it's not a building. You did not die for a building. You died for the people. We have the opportunity, Lord, to be the bride of Christ. Lord, that makes up the church. And right now we're scattered. We're everywhere, all around this world. But Lord, we're going to be strong for you. We're going to shine our light for you. We're going to be difference makers for you. Lord, thank you that even in the midst of a pandemic, when everything in our world has been turned upside down, that you have been our true north, that your Holy Spirit sustains us, and that where two or more are gathered together, wherever that may be, you are there in the midst of them. Lord, I pray my words would become your words. And Lord, that this would be a time of great encouragement as we learn to be the church and not just attend one. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Good to see everybody who's here in the room and also everybody who's watching us on TV and on the web as well. We're thankful uh, for you as well. We are in the middle of a series called Underdog, and today, as you've already heard, this is the 22nd birthday of Sagebrush Church. So we finally got past the teenage years and uh, into the 20s. It's really awesome. And so um, we're going we're to head over to the TV. I want, I want to give you a little history about Sagebrush because th- th- this church, it truly is an underdog story. So let, let me give you a little history about it. Uh, way back in uh, 1999, I was working at a church called Hoffmantown Church on the other side of town. I was the student pastor for them. I had been doing student ministry for many, many years, and I just felt an angst to do something with adult ministries, and I wanted to start my own church. And there was a rumor that was going on that uh, possibly the pastor at the time, a man named Charles Lowry, was thinking about starting a church on the west side of town. So I remember walking down the hallway, knocking on the door, and I say, hey, Charles, can I talk to you for a second? And I kind of cast my vision of what I wanted to see, and I said, if this church is thinking about launching a church on the west side, I really would like to be uh, the, the guy who leads that charge. Well, Charles was a little bit nervous about that. I'd never spoken to adults before. He wasn't sure that adults would follow me. He wasn't sure about if I could cast a vision, that kind of stuff. And he wasn't even certain that anybody wanted to even start a church on the west side. It seemed like everybody was pretty happy and content over in the northeast heights. So he said, let's have a banquet. We'll announce that you're going to do this initiative, and we'll see what happens. I said, that sounds great. So we had this banquet, did it in the worship center, had over 500 people show up. I mean, it was so exciting. There was just wall-to-wall people in the spirit of anticipation. Now, the reason there was a spirit of anticipation and why everyone was so excited was because they thought that Charles was going to pastor both churches. So they thought that he was going to be in the Northeast Heights and then for that service and then drive all the way across town and do the service on the west side. So when it was announced that I was going to be the guy kind of doing the West Side Church. Well, let me ask you a question. You ever had like a a gas bubble in your stomach before? Has anybody ever had that before? And and you you know you want to let it out a little, but you don't want to let everything out because you don't want to kill everybody around you. Do you know what I'm talking about right now? And so you, you 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 let a little out and then more comes out than you think and people can't see in color all of a sudden. You know what I'm talking about? I was the gas bubble at the party, okay? Because when they announced that I was going to be the pastor, you could just kind of feel the air coming out of the room. 
A few weeks later, we started this class called People of Purpose. And we had 500 at the banquet. So I'm thinking, we're going to have hundreds of people. I set up all these chairs. That was so stupid of me. I set up all these chairs. And we had a class on Saturday and a class on Sunday called it People of Purpose. Had less than 30 people come between the two classes. No, nobody wanted to start this church. Why they didn't just go ahead and stop this endeavor at that point, I have no idea. But they said, hey, see if you can get some more people to come. And so uh, the people that came, myself, we invited everybody that we knew. And we begged folks. We said, you got to come. you got to be a part uh, of this church. And so for 18 months, we met together as a class. And here was the, the room that we met in, just a small little room. But in a few months, we were having a lot of fun. We were eating a lot of food. And all of a sudden, more adults started coming in. Now, they weren't coming in because they wanted to start a church on the west side. They were coming in because we were having an absolute blast. And it wasn't too long we had to move out of this room into a larger room uh, that the church had at the time. Well, it was so exciting. Everything was great. We had over 400 adults, not counting their kids, coming to our class. But now the church is nervous, the the staff is nervous that I'm going to take 400 adults with me to start the church on the west side. Because they said that would be too many. So staff members, are you ready for this? Staff members actually pulled people aside and said, don't go. So my own staff was undermining me, and people were leaving left and right during this time, or they were coming to class, and they would come up and say, listen, I talked to so-and-so on staff, and they don't want me to go, so we're going to keep coming to class because we love it, but we're not going to go with you. So, So I had that going for me as well. It was awesome. So 18 months, we were in this the classroom, and we were doing some exciting stuff, and finally we got the opportunity to, to launch the church. They finally said, okay, you can go. We can start you up. So I put a line in the sand to the people who were coming to class. I said, listen, if you're not going to go start the West Side Church, you can't come anymore, because we're coming now to the last few months, and I want to teach you the kind of church we're going to be, so don't come back. Go to another class instead. So we had over 400 adults coming at the time, and uh, once I drew a line in the sand, the next weekend, I thought they were going to come back. They didn't. We had less than 100 that came back. Three-fourths of them said, no, we're going to stay where we're at. And with those less than 100 adults with their kids, we made up about 120 people. And we started over at Petroglyph Elementary School. On Super Bowl Sunday is when it happened. Remember, the Super Bowl used to only have one week. This was the first service that we had. Uh, <laughs> you know, every time I show that, you laugh. And I, it hurts my feelings, to be honest with you. I feel like pledging allegiance to the flag, honestly, when I see it. Um, that was in style. It's 1999, Tommy Hilfiger. That was a very expensive shirt, and I'm a little offended that you laughed at it, to be honest with you. Uh, there I am again. Okay, that's great. I'm so happy for this footage. Our kids met in hallways, and uh, the, the Petroglyph was great. It was a great little place to start, but the problem was everything was really small. It was elementary school. So the cafeteria was really small. Uh, the water fountains were really low. The toilets were even lower. Uh, we were afraid we had to call in search parties for people that could pick them back up again, you know, because it was way down on the ground. We were there for only 10 months because we grew so quickly. First week, we opened up the doors. We had over 300 people show up. I said, oh, it's just a bunch of looky-loos. They're not going to come back next week. And they did. Uh, and they came back at the week after that and the week after that. And 10 months later, we had to move to a new place. And so we moved to LBJ Middle School. And uh, we set up and we tore down in the gymnasium. Week after week after week after week after week for seven and a half more years. And every chance we got to save a dime, uh, we, we saved it. 
because we were in hopes of being able to get property one day to have our own little place, our own little church. And the property that we have here on the Riverside campus, that was the first property that we were able to purchase because of the generosity of the people who came. And you can see it was just, it was just such a great Great time. Well, we're getting ready to go. We, we, we've done the, the groundbreaking. I'll show you a little bit of that. This is what the ground looked like before we put a church on it. And uh, this is after they had leveled it all. It was really a rocky area through here. Um, we, we're, we wanted to change our name at this point. We were called Hoffmantown West for the first eight and a half years, but now we wanted to have our own identity in the community. And so we voted as a church. We pitched a bunch of names, and we voted, uh, and we decided to call ourselves Watermark Church. Or you, probably, you probably don't know that in our history. Uh, we were Watermark Church for one week. <laughs> uh, and the reason we were Watermark Church for one week was we found out there was another church in another state that uh, copywritten the name Watermark. And they had, se- they had seen our, our website and they sent me a cease and desist on the name and said that if we kept the name, they were going to sue us. So you know Jesus is coming back soon when one church decides to sue another church over the name Watermark. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's, uh, that's about as wiggity-whack as it gets. So we, we, we had a few more weeks. We already had signage. We had to throw the Watermark signage away. We needed a name. We didn't have a name. This is not good. So I went to lunch with a guy named Tom Garrett. He's a PR guy in town, genius of a guy for PR. And I'm sitting down, and I'm having lunch with Tom Garrett, and he said, hey, have you ever thought of the name Sagebrush? And I said, that is the dumbest name I've ever heard in my entire life. Are you kidding me, Sagebrush? Sagebrush is a weed. And it's not even a good-looking weed. It's one of the ugliest things. Nobody even likes Sagebrush being around. He said, exactly. I said, what? He said, you're just not thinking about the right terms. He said, Sagebrush takes over entire regions. And you can't stop it. You can burn it, and it comes back stronger than before. You can pull it up, and you can shake it. And all the seeds will just float all around, and more sagebrush will populate. It grows only because God wants it to grow. I said, that's a perfect name, isn't it? Isn't that a good name for us? So we're a weed. That nobody wants, but you can't get rid of us. Isn't that great? It's the ultimate underdog story. Friends, every time I pull onto one of our properties, one of our campuses, I just know that the only way this happened was that God did it. And the mere fact that he's allowed me to be a part of it for the last 22 years is such a humbling experience. Friends, it's a miracle that sagebrush exists. As a matter of fact, it's a miracle that any church exists. Now, you know, if you know anything about the Bible, you know about the history of the early church, right? Jesus dies, and then he rises again, and then he appears for 40 days to different people. Over 500 eyewitnesses saw that Jesus had indeed risen again from the dead. And so they're waiting, you know, see what Jesus is going to do. And after 40 days, Jesus, right before the disciples, ascends to the right hand of the Father in full view. And this is what Jesus said to them in Acts chapter 1. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. 
So Jesus ascends to the heavens right in front of these guys, and they're blown away. And so what do they do? They wait for the promised Holy Spirit. They go into the upper room, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray. Look at what it says here, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then in Acts chapter 2 is the answer to their prayer. While they're praying, tongues of fire fell upon them. The word tongues means languages. They were given the supernatural ability to speak in other languages so that the message of Jesus could be spread quicker. And Peter goes out and everyone's gathered together in the streets trying to see what in the world's going on. And Peter stands up and says, this Jesus that you crucified some 47 days earlier, talking to the same mob that screamed, crucify him, crucify him him he's saying you killed him but God raised him from the dead and he died as the ultimate payment for your sin and the words of Peter through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit just cut to the very quick of those people and 3,000 men not counting women and children were added to their number that day and that began the birth of the church they had no building. Because the church is not a building. One of the things that has ticked me off during this pandemic is that people try to equate the church to nothing more than a one-hour weekend worship service. We are more than that. We've always been more than that. And it's not about this building. It's about you. You're the church. And you can't stop the church because you can't stop you. And no matter where you are, no matter where you're watching from, you represent Jesus to your piece of the world. You are the bride of Christ. You are the hope. God gave you the message of reconciliation. God made you to be a light in a dark place. It's not about a physical structure. And that's why I've said since day one, the church has never been closed. It's always been open. Now, this early church that didn't even have a place to meet, they changed the world, didn't they? And the last time I checked, that's kind of our goal. We want to leave this world, at least our piece of it, in better shape than the way that we found it. So here's the question. What did the early church do? And again, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about those people. What did the early church, those people do that made them live such significant lives and have such a tremendous impact for the kingdom of God? Well, it's found for us in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 42. Look at what they did. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everybody was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, you're the church. Church isn't this building. It's not some piece of property. There's just a building here. You make the church. So let's ask ourselves the question. When we look at the things the first church did, how well are we doing? Are we doing the same things that the first church did? So you just kind of grade yourself as we go through this, okay? Because I don't want you to attend church. I want you to be the church. 
Let's go to the first thing that they gave themselves to. It says they studied the scriptures and prayed as if their eternal life depended on it. <laughs> Even though it didn't. They were serious, these people. They were serious about the word of God. They loved the word of God. They memorized the word of God. They meditated upon the word of God. They studied the word of God. They internalized the word of God until his standards became their standards. And, and, and the direction that he wanted them to go was the direction that they decided to go until his will became their will. They memorized and meditated upon the word of God. They wanted to know what it said. And when they understood what it said, they wanted to live it out to the very best they could to the glory of Jesus Christ. And they took prayer seriously. These people were prayer warriors. They prayed all the time. And, and they didn't pray, lame, be with me, Lord, prayers. They were praying big, hairy, audacious prayers. If you read through the book of Acts, these people were persecuted. They were beaten down. They were killed. They were, all their possessions were taken from them. But they just kept praying for more boldness. They kept praying for more courage. So every day they were seeking God. And they loved the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind and all their strength. So I'm going to ask you again, because I've been asking you off and on for the last few weeks, how are you doing when it comes to spending time in the Word of God? And how are you doing seeking the face of God in prayer? When's the last time you just gave God five minutes of your undivided attention and you just cast all your cares and all your burdens upon Him? The first church, they took these things very, very seriously. How about us? Let me give you the second thing that they did. They looked out for each other. They encouraged each other. And they supported each other. And they helped each other. And they prayed for each other. They were there for each other. This group of people was a group of people where the lonely weren't lonely anymore. It was a group of people where the disconnected weren't disconnected anymore. I mean, they really cared about each other. And they, 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 they sacrificed everything they could to help somebody else along the way. And they were vulnerable with each other. They were real with each other. None of this mask stuff that they would put on. Now they would bear their hearts. They'd bear their burdens. They'd bear their souls. One of my favorite stories that Chuck Swindoll used to tell. Uh, Chuck was in the Marines and he talked about his Marine Corps buddies. And he said there was one particular guy that you would never have guessed, not in a million years, that would have ever given his life over to Jesus Christ. He said he was kind of a woman, Izer, you know, he had a different girl every weekend or every day. He, was, he drank all the time. He'd swear. He'd cuss. There was just nothing about him that would ever say to you that one day he would give his life to Christ. Well, years had gone by since Chuck had seen this guy. And he just happened to meet him on the street one day when he, when he wasn't even anticipating to see him. And they recognized each other immediately, and they began to have a conversation. And the guy began to share how Jesus had made a difference in his life. And he talked about how he gave his life to Christ, and how everything had been transformed, and everything had been changed. And now he found meaning and purpose in a relationship with Jesus. And Chuck just couldn't be more excited. He said, the one guy you would never have thought was the one guy who did. But then that guy said this to Chuck. He said, even though I've got Jesus in my life, I'm still missing something. And Chuck said, what, what, what are you missing? What do you mean? And this is what he said. He said, I miss the old days when we used to go down to the tavern on base. And we used to drink a couple of beers and let down our hair and tell everything about each other. And you really cast our burdens to each other and be vulnerable with each other. 
And then he said this. This is what he said. He said, I've got nobody to share my faults with. I've got nobody in my life that can put their arm around me and look me and say, it's going to be okay. We'll get through this together. Now, here's a guy who has a relationship with Jesus, and he loves Jesus, and what's he missing? He's missing the church. He's missing that band of brothers, that band of sisters that says, you know, we'll get through this. Hey, we're going to make it. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to hold you accountable. We can overcome this together. You know, that's, that's the thing that stunk so much about the pandemic is so many times the small groups, they couldn't gather together. And Zooming ain't like being in the same room, is it? And some of you just got so sick of Zooming, you, you gave up. But you gave up even that little bit of connection. I, I think you need to probably start Zooming again. Or maybe you need to start social distancing somewhere and, and, and get into a room that you can be far enough away, but yet close enough where you can share your heart with each other and pray for each other and, I think that's been the most difficult thing for so many people in our church because, you know, your small group becomes your family. They become the family you choose, not the family that you ended up with, you know, in the first place. These are the people you actually want to hang around with, you know. It's like if Christmas came around, I'd rather do Christmas with them than those bozos over here, right? There was a young man, he went to his pastor, he said, I really want to get in a small group, but everybody who's in a small group's got their act together. He said, my life, I'm an absolute mess, so I, I, I just couldn't get in a small group. And the pastor was like, what am I supposed to say to this kid? Get in a small group, they're just as jacked up as you are? <laughs> he honestly believed that he didn't fit in. Because he wasn't good enough. So let's just clear the air. You play along at home as well, but in the room... How many would say that your life is still somewhat of a mess and that you're still in desperate need of a Savior? Just out of curiosity, raise your hand up real high. So you'd say you're a messy person like your pastor. Okay, I appreciate that. So we're all jacked up. You know, I always used to make the joke all the time. I said, if you're a perfect person, don't come to our church because we'll just mess you up, right? That's the way that works. We're just going to mess you up. We, we need each other. I can't even tell you, my friends have meant the world to me during this pandemic. The elders have meant the world to me during this pandemic. The staff has meant the world to me during this pandemic. Just someone to listen to, someone to share, someone who will help you, someone who will help you get out of your depression, get out of your funk, give you a better perspective to fix your eyes back upon Jesus again. In the early church, they're getting the snot knocked out of them. They needed each other. They needed to carry their burdens for each other. They needed to be there for each other, loving each other, accepting each other. So what did they give themselves to? They gave themselves to the Bible. They gave themselves to prayer. They, they gave themselves to each other. And let me show you the next thing was. They were outrageously generous. Rather than thinking about how they could get more stuff for themselves, they were thinking about how they could leverage their stuff to help somebody else along the way. Now, I, I got to pause here for just a second because I got to brag on you. I've never seen anything like this in my life. Pandemic hits, right? And, and when, when we canceled church... Uh, I, I just thought, you know, this will only be for a week or two. That was a dumb thought I had in my head. I didn't have a clue what we were in for. And I was nervous. I mean, we, we, we operate. Everything that we do is on the generosity of somebody else. We don't have a product that we sell. It's the generosity of people who believe that the message of Jesus is worthy to be spread. 
And so I know what you guys do on a snow day. You don't show up and you don't give. That's what happens on a snow day. And so I'm thinking, well, we're going to have a couple of snow days. We're going to have to buckle up, man. Buckle up, buttercup. Here we go, all right? In the beginning, we, we started to struggle financially. And then when everybody began to realize this wasn't going away anytime soon, you guys all showed up in a big way with your generosity. We had the best year financially we've ever had as a church last year in the midst of a pandemic because of your generosity. I'm blown away. And we didn't, we didn't have to say no to one of our ministry partners. From the needs in Egypt to the needs in Haiti to the needs in Cuba to the needs in Belize to the needs right here in our own backyard, we've been able to fund every single partner and every single endeavor, and we're dreaming more dreams now than ever before because of your generosity, because of your faithfulness. Well, can you imagine in the first century you see a group of people like this? I mean, they love God with everything they've got. They take prayer. They take the Bible seriously. You can see how their lives are being transformed. They look out for each other. They're generous. There's not a needy person among them. Well, guess what happened? The Bible says in verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What does that mean? People wanted to be a part of that. Because they had never seen a group of people act like this before and treat each other like this before. Isn't that attractive? And that's the kind of church that we've always sought to be these past 22 years. We haven't always hit the mark, but that's been the goal. That's been the vision. That's what we've always been shooting for. One more thing that they gave themselves to. The early church made people their priority. Why, why, why do we do what we do? Well, we do it for Jesus, and we do it to reach one more for, for him. Because in the first century, they believed that there was a heaven and there was a hell, and people really were going to go one place or the other. And they knew that's why Jesus had died. They knew that's why Jesus had risen again, was to rescue those who were perishing. And they knew that they knew things that nobody else knew. And the only way the message could be shared is if they spoke up and they shared it with somebody else. And it was irrelevant to them. They could have cared less whether you were rich or poor. They didn't care about the color of a person's skin. They didn't care about their background. They didn't care about their career. They didn't care about their socioeconomic situation. All those things were irrelevant. Because all those things are irrelevant to God. They cared about everyone all the time. I drove by a church the other day where they have church signs. You ever see church signs? This church sign said this, we care about you Sundays, 10 a.m. only. <laughs> That's a rough church right there, man. They care for one hour. We're scattered all over the country, all over the world right now. I think that's exactly where he wants us to be. Because we're in places we've never been before and we're more cognizant of eternal realities than ever before and I bet you're having more spiritual conversations than you've ever had before. And I bet if I know you, because you're the church, you've lifted Jesus up. You've shared the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And when the opportunity came, you shared the difference of what Jesus did on the cross. And how he's for us and not against us. And how he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And that we get to go to heaven one day, not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that he has done for us. That's what the early church did. That's what the early church gave themselves to. Now the question is, why did they do it? Why did they do it? 
Well, write this down. Here's your answer. They never forgot the reason and the reward. They never forgot the reason and the reward. Why do you leverage everything you can for the kingdom of God? Why do you care about this place so much? That you give so generously week after week. That you serve. That right now, even at home, when this pandemic is over, you can't wait to get back here and be a mighty force for the Lord once again. And not to say that you're not one right now where you're at. Because you are. They remember the reason, the reward. What, what was their reason? Well, it's found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Jesus endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for, from sinful man so that you won't grow weary and you won't lose heart. Why do we keep showing up? Why do we keep doing what we do? Why do we keep getting back up when this world keeps knocking us back down? Because Jesus got back up. Jesus is the reason. This is no chore to us. This isn't like I have to. Everybody at home, everybody in this room, you're like, I have to go to church. I have to turn that stream on. I have to watch that guy. No, nobody thinks that. This is a get-to. And one thing the pandemic's taught us is that a church is a get-to. It's a get-to. I get to worship him. I get to, I get to read the Bible. I get to pray. I get to share Jesus with other people. I get to be generous. I get to fund the kingdom of God. It's a get-to. And why is it a get-to? 2 Corinthians 5, 14, because Christ's love compels us. You've never been loved the way you've been loved before. You've never been cared for the way you've been cared for by Jesus. You've never been forgiven like the way Jesus forgives you. You've never had somebody in your corner like Jesus is in your corner. You've got a friend who sticks closer than a brother. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died for us. So what are we going to do? We're going to live for him. He's the reason. What's the reward? Well, Jesus said, even when you offer a cup of cold water in his name, then he'll write that down, and he one day will reward you for that. That's the reason. That's the reward. That's why we're trying to live a significant life. That's why the first century Christians lived a significant life. One of my favorite things is sometimes I think about if we could go back in time and interview people from the first century, what would they say to us? If we went back and we said, listen, 2,000 years from now, who do you think people are still going to remember? Who do you think people are going to talk about? And what do you bet they would say, I think people 2,000 years from now will remember Caesar. And they'll remember Nero. That's, that's who they'll remember. You say, well, wait a second, wait a second. And they're like a group of Christians, you know, kind of doing some crazy stuff right now. Don't you think anybody's going to remember them? And I think in the first century they'd say, no, no one's going to remember them. They're just a bunch of insignificant people believing some crazy things over there. No, 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 that, 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 it's going to be there for a little while and then it's just going to absolutely go away. Nobody's going to remember them. Then you press them a little bit and say, you sure about that? I mean, you know, their church leaders are pretty impressive people. And there's Peter and there's Paul and there's Mary and there's Martha. I mean, don't you think anybody's going to talk about them 2,000? And they'll say, no. They're just a bunch of rubble rousers, man. They just get thrown in jail left and right. They're crazy. No one's going to remember them. And here we are 2,000 years later. And isn't it interesting that we name our children, Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha, and we name our dogs, Caesar and Nero. <laughs> Isn't that good? 
Why is it like that? Well, Caesar and Nero lived for their kingdom. And their kingdom failed. Peter, Paul, Mary, Martha, and so many others who have gone on before us, who carried the torch and passed it on, lived for an audience of one. They lived for Jesus. And they lived a significant life that we still talk about to this day. So what's your reason? Is it Jesus? Is that why you get out of bed every day? To live for him, to shine for him? Or is it to make a paycheck, make a little money, do a little side hustle? And what's your reward? What are you living for? Are you the church? Or do you just attend one? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, there's no reason that any church should ever exist except for the reason that you want it to. That's the only reason. Lord, I pray that we'll be faithful. Because the torch has been passed to us. We're to keep your light burning strong. We're to pass it on to the next generation. And I thank you for the group of people that I've had the honor and privilege to serve alongside for these 22 years who have shown me more about what it means to be a fully devoted follower of yours than anything else. And Lord, I pray that you'd continue to inspire them and encourage them, that you'd continue to motivate them, that they would fix their eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that they would run, keep running the race that you've set before them. Lord, for those who have grown tired and those who have grown weary, for those who have carried sin along the way and it's become a bag around their waist slowing them down, God, may we throw off the sin that so easily hinders and may we run for you once again. May you stoke a red-hot fire for you, for your word, and for being the church. So wherever we are, God, may we be faithful to what you've called us to in this day. Help us, Lord, to leave this world in better shape than the way that we found it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.